The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are truly delighted and honored to have you as part of today's teleconference, where we hope to discuss L1 intra-company transferee uh, issues, uh, the pitfalls, what to expect, how to answer RFEs, etc. On the panel with me today are two of our brilliant Murthy Law Firm attorneys, uh, knowledgeable, smart, bright, and who have done L1 work. So first we have Kenya Sanders, who has over 20 years of experience doing immigration law issues, and Joel Janowicz, who has over 10 years and most of it here at the Murthy Law Firm. So you have a great team that can sort of share what's happening from the inside and share trends with you that we're seeing based on processing dozens or dozens and dozens or hundreds of cases or sometimes thousands of cases each year. So of course, all of you know, or most of you should know if you're on this call, that uh, you know what's an L1 visa? Well, it's meant for uh, an employer, employee and so you as an employer would have your employee come in on what we sometimes refer to as within the same company or intra-company transfers. So this is somebody who has worked abroad, either in an executive, managerial, or specialized knowledge capacity for at least one continuous year within the past three years before entering the United States. And the person will continue to work in the U.S. at the U.S brand, subsidiary, affiliate, company, et cetera, in one of these same positions, either as an executive, a manager, or in the specialized knowledge role. Uh, as we said before, it's a parent, subsidiary, affiliate, branch, office, or it could even be a joint venture agreement. And each of these terms uh, have very specific definitions uh, under U.S. immigration law. and. If the definitions are not, if a person does not meet all of the requirements, then the person potentially would not qualify for the L1 status. And clearly, not every single person who works for an international or global company would automatically be eligible, even if you think that you meet some of these requirements or some of the, meet some of these tests. So while you can make the argument, clearly you would have some uphill battles, and we are seeing sometimes what we think should be black and white or simple issues are coming back with ridiculously complex, uh, long-winded requests for evidence, uh, which are now becoming extremely common in today's sort of political environment with everything going on with the anti-immigrant attitude, what we call Baha by American, higher American um, mentality, you know, the focus, which, by the way, Makes sense in theory, but it's in practice. What do they say? The devil's always in the details. Um, but with that, let me do this. Let me jump into asking Joel. So, Joel, in order to get the L1A as a senior executive manager or L1B for specialized knowledge, the employer or petitioner 
who files the case with the USCIS must establish what we talked about as a qualifying relationship between the company that is the employer or the company abroad and the U.S. company. So what is exactly the qualifying relationship? Yes, good afternoon. Um, so this basically means that the foreign company where the person is currently working is, or presumably currently working, it, uh, is either a parent, subsidiary, affiliate, or branch of the U.S. company. Um, just because the company abroad and the company in the U.S. share the same name, that does not mean that they're, they meet the legal qualifications. Um, the companies have to be able to show the qualifying relationship, document the qual- qualifying relationship through corporate documents. So you may see stock certificates, operating agreements, other types of evidence like that. Um, one of the key focuses on this issue about qualifying relationship is ownership. Um, you have to have common ownership between the two entities. So it could be an individual owns a majority share of both companies. It could be that a uh, that the one of either the U.S. company owns the foreign company or the other way around, the, the, the foreign company owns the U.S. company. Um, you could have a group of people owning both as long as they have uh, approximately the same share of both companies. Um, on the other hand, having a, let's say, even a close family member own one company and, and you may own the other company, that does not qualify. That is not common ownership. It's not about whether you, you know, the companies within your individual family. We're talking about the corporate family here. Okay. So obviously we have a big difference between the L1A, which is for senior managers, executives, or and the L1B, which is for specialized knowledge workers. So can you explain the difference, Kenya? Sure. Hi. Good afternoon. Um, managers, now one of the, the um, for L1A, managers are people who actively manage the organization or a part thereof, or they manage a function. Managers either oversee the work of other supervisors, managers, or professionals, or they can manage an essential function of the organization. And they have to exercise discretion over the running of the day-to-day operations of the company. This means that simply being called a manager is not enough. You need to show who or what the person is managing and the responsibilities the person executes. So it is important to know that more than 50% of the individual's duties has to be purely managerial. So you have to indicate percentages of time spent on each duty so that it's clearly evident that when they add up the percentages that the duties are more than 50% in case they do execute you know, some hands-on work. So, and their duties, purely managerial duties, will have to be, they have to be directing uh, their subordinate personnel, hiring, firing, etc. They are able to sign off on documents on behalf of the company. The individuals that are being managed must be managers and or professionals because you cannot be a first-line supervisor where you are managing like technical workers who are not College graduates or college grads, right. Okay, thank you, Kenya. And Joel, what about the whole concept? I know there's a lot of debate about functional managers. The the functional manager, these cases tend to be very challenging because you can't can't generally be the person performing the non-managerial duties, 
But when you're when you're talking about a functional manager, usually you don't have many or or maybe not even any reports. So you're basically trying to show how you're managing an essential function within the company and yet not performing the the actual function. So these cases can be very challenging. There are situations where they do work where you can even come up with a pretty good case. But usually we try to steer clear of that category unless, you know, there's really no other option and it looks like we have a chance. Um, also for executives, um, you will also see executives. It's sometimes very confusing about whether a person is an executive or a manager, but from USCIS perspective, you can be one or the other. You cannot be both. You can't mix these two together to show you qualify. So um, for executives, they're typically responsible for directing the management of the organization or a major component or function of the company. They're going to set policies and goals. They're going to have broad latitude to make, latitude to make important decisions. Um, keep in mind, the government's not going to just look at the job title. If I own, let's say, a convenience store with a couple of employees and I called myself the CEO of that convenience store, the government's going to very likely decide that that's not a manager or executive uh, position. Um, so the job title may have some impact, but it, it's not controlling. You know, those are really, really good points. I keep reminding people whenever I have my consultations that remember that the entire sort of L1A, L1B, the entire EB1 sort of EB1C category was really created by Congress uh, when the law was passed for large multinational corporations with thousands of employees, if not hundreds, but certainly most often thousands of employees worldwide. There are these very important people. We don't want them to stand in line, wait for an H1 number or what have you. So now when clever lawyers try to go with small mind pa companies or smaller organizations, it becomes like a red flag in the eyes of the USCIS to issue those RFEs and give people a hard time. Heck, they're even giving hard time now to major multinational companies and to very, very large employers. So of course they're going to look at, in the example that Joel just gave, look at it very, very harshly. So we've talked about managers, we've talked about functional managers and executives. Next, let's talk about the specialized knowledge worker, the person applying for the L1B. The others were the L1A and now we're talking L1B category. Timeframes, of course, are much less. They only get five years instead of seven maximum years in the US. And these are employees who need to have a very in-depth understanding of the company's products or services and the international markets for those products or services or they need to have some type of advanced knowledge of the company's processes and procedures. The USCIS generally says that this must be knowledge that can be obtained only through experience with that employer, such as experience with proprietary software or methodologies unique to the company, which is also important to the competitiveness of the company in global markets. And so they're really going after a lot of the uh, L1A and L1B denials or RFEs that people are starting to see are where they're saying, uh-uh, we're not convinced that you actually meet all of these tests. So the term specialized knowledge should not be confused with the term specialty occupation, which is used in connection with the H1B status. The USCIS currently holds a very high standard when they look at the L1B petitions or adjudicate them, when they request evidence that the employer must show that the employee or beneficiary not only possesses the specialized knowledge, but is also a key employee within the company. Looks like the government constantly trying to pry this and make it 
even more difficult in every which way by putting more roadblocks to to trying to issue these approvals. And the person does not necessarily have to actually possess specialized knowledge of something proprietary to the petitioning employer, even though it's not required. In practice, it can be far more challenging to obtain the L-1B petition approval where there is no proprietary element to the specialized knowledge. Right, and and also, even though the policy guidance on specialized knowledge says it doesn't have to be proprietary, doesn't have to be narrowly held, USCIS seems to come back with not only narrowly held, but only this person mm-hmm. can do this job and nobody else. So that is kind so of the standard. It sounds like good lawsuits. It's like the IT Server Alliance lawsuits. We need to have more and more lawsuits because every time the government is sued, in I would say eight or nine out of ten times, they are either losing or having to remodify or change, like they quietly changed back the website, surreptitiously changed it, you know, changed it quietly and then changed it back after that lawsuit. Similarly, it's like you have to push, and those who agree to, with it end up with a denial, and there's nothing you can do in these cases. Right. And uh, one more point is that it is not necessary for the beneficiary to have held the same position abroad as the intended job in the U.S. as long as the position held overseas was as a manager or executive or worked in specialized knowledge, that person can be transferred to the U.S. on either on L1A or on, uh, on L1B. For example, a person who is in a specialized knowledge position abroad could be offered a position in the U.S. as an executive under the L1A category. Except that then that person is not eligible to file for the green card in the future under the EB1C category because you need to have been a senior manager executive and coming here in order for the green card. But for the right. L1A and L1B, 100% correct. Right. Okay, what are some of the areas that are that we've been seeing more challenges, Joel? So um, in uh, April of 2017, um, as Sheila referenced earlier, uh, President Trump signed an executive order uh, about Buy America, Hire America. And on paper, what it says is that it's intended to create higher wages and employment rates for workers in the U.S. and to protect, protect their economic interests. Um, in practice, it's uh, this seems to be just one additional way they're using to try to stop people, stop, you know, foreigners from coming to the U.S. Um, that's clearly been the, the direction that this administration has taken. And while you may not see this referenced explicitly in a request for evidence or a denial, um, it's always kind of hanging ha- hanging in the backdrop. And it has to be something you keep in mind. And it can be helpful um, to, try to, to try to point out ways that maybe you are helping to hire America, buy, buy America through uh, this individual being able to come here. Maybe they're working on something that helps the U.S. economy, that lots of U.S. employees are being assisted by this. Um, so so by American, hire American, you're saying to make that argument. What about the whole argument that an executive order can never tr- violate or trump the intent well, of Congress or legislature and, and, in passing L1A laws? And that's why we need more people to be willing to stand up and, and file lawsuits because um, people, a lot of people, I think especially people from, that are not from the U.S., think that filing a lawsuit means that the government's going to take repercussions against you. And in truth, what we've found is people that are willing to stand up to the government and file lawsuits they get scared of you. They don't. They don't have the resources. Not to only fight scared, these they battles. approve all those cases, and those who have not joined the lawsuit don't, end up not getting the H one or the L one approvals right. that they need. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, so in in this climate, I mean, it has always been difficult responding to an RFE on the issue of L1B specialized knowledge or refiling such a petition following a dis, uh, denial. And it has become, um, you know, even more difficult. It's, you know, it's difficult to show what a person knows, what is in their mind. You must be able to demonstrate how this person stands out as compared to others in the field. Including so now we have jumped to specialized knowledge, you mean? In specialized mm -hmm. knowledge, yes. right? Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. So for the specialized knowledge, you know, how to, you know, respond to an RFE or a denial. Um, so, I mean, you know, you, ha you not only have to show this person has specialized knowledge in comparison to others in the industry, but also within the, the same petitioning company. So it is important to remember that just because a worker is special or a good worker or important to you does not mean that she is a specialized knowledge worker. So for a specialized knowledge employee, have special knowledge of the company's products, services, and the international markets for those products and services. Or they have advanced knowledge of the company processes and procedures. The key words here are special and advanced. Yeah, and, and generally the knowledge, you, you want the knowledge to be something, if whenever possible, to be something you can only obtain with experience through that particular employer, um, such as experience with proprietary software or methodologies unique to that company, um, which are also important to the competitive competitiveness of that company. Um, so what are some of the issues employers are experiencing in the RFEs and denials of L-1B petitions? Uh, many of the L-1B cases involve a situation where the company may have developed a proprietary product that it markets to the U.S. and the company is in need of transferring its employee who's an expert on, who is an expert on that project, uh, product to travel to the U.S., work on modifying, customizing it, implementing the product in real time in the U.S., um, in the IT software context, many companies are developing proprietary software. And so what's happened is the USCIS does not simply accept that because your company developed the software, because again, it's so it's so prevalent within the industry, just because you've developed the software that nobody else has developed, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to qualify for L1B. Um, so the USCIS wants to focus and they're going to force you to focus in those RFE responses or obviously on your initial filing on why the person's knowledge of that company's proprietary is so special. Yeah, and you know in this context while we're having this discussion, it really should be noted that the USCIS tends to be reluctant to approve L1 petitions for IT consulting companies, especially if the person is being transferred from India. I know it sounds like racism to say one country, but there's been a lot of research and, in fact, statistics that prove that they are somehow, for some reason, focusing on India uh, as a part of the region, a part of the world that there's concern. In, in, in fact, as we were saying, the denial rate for L1 petitions for, of those coming from India is close to 50 percent, five zero percent, because I didn't want someone thinking it's 15 percent, it's 50, five zero. And this doesn't mean that IT consulting firms should not use the L1B category to transfer necessary personnel on L1A or L1B, it's particularly L1B that we're focusing on now. But if the goal is to have your valued employee come in to handle some type of what you what the government considers to be routine consulting services for clients in the U.S., as is very common either in the L1B or in the H1 context, 
that could be a potential problem because the USCIS is probably going to end up either RFEing or outright denying the case under the new the rules under which they don't even need to issue any RFEs any right. longer if they feel that it's not meeting all of the criteria. So what is the, what are the options then, Kenya? Well, to qualify for the um, specialty occupation, it's crucial to clearly define the specialized knowledge and then explain with documentary evidence how the employee gained that specialized knowledge to show that the employee, in fact, holds the specialized knowledge and explain why the specialized knowledge is required for the U.S. position. That is how the specialized knowledge makes the beneficiary a key employee. When defining the specialized knowledge, it's important to isolate the specialized knowledge from common and generally held knowledge. Documents on the proprietary nature of the product, software such as Patent documents and license agreements are very helpful in showing the proprietary nature of the knowledge, which in turn can be presented as specialized knowledge. Based on each case, your Murthy Law Firm attorney could go over the different kinds of documents which may be used in connection with defining the specialized knowledge. Yeah, and, and documenting how the employee gained that knowledge is often the most difficult part. Uh, a lot of IT companies that develop proprietary products, the L1B beneficiary may be the actual technical developer of that product, which can be pretty helpful. Um, it's a lot less helpful if the person only developed, say, for example, for, for a piece of software, uh, they just developed some modules within that. Or, you know, even less helpful would be if the individual was trained for, let's say, a few weeks or a couple of months on it. That would be a very difficult case to present as specialized knowledge. Yeah, and in a situation where the employee or the beneficiary had created something used by the company, that employee would not be would not have received any training on the product. Um, so then it becomes necessary to show how the specialized knowledge actually came to the company from this person. So for each case, there may be you may have some kind of creative options or ways in which to document how the specialized knowledge was actually gained by the employee that you're trying to bring in on L1B status. One example is like project plans, which are used when developing the product that may identify the particular beneficiary or L1B employee as, for example, being the author or the key producer of that or key person in, involved in it. Also, some developers uh, provide training for other employees. So that could be helpful. Yeah, and I think just kind of as a general rule, the easier it is and the less time it took for that person to gain the knowledge, the less likely USAS is going to consider it specialized knowledge. Um, instead, USAS could conclude that that's a knowledge that's not so advanced or special that anybody could gain it within a short period of time. And I think the response for that, for the government is, hey, you could train a U.S. worker for that. If it's only going to take three, four months to train them, why do you need to bring someone in? Okay. And we also will discuss sort of when we are doing these petitions, how the specialized knowledge makes that particular beneficiary a key employee. Because the USCIS holds the position that if everyone holds the same level of knowledge within your company, then technically nobody possesses within quote specialized knowledge, especially if the company has a very large number of employees. So the focus would be in trying to explain why it would not be possible for the company or the employer to move forward without having that particular employee with the knowledge 
and how difficult it would be to impart that knowledge to another new employee. So you need to distinguish the particular employee's knowledge from other similar employees within the company. Also, as an employer, you want to try to present evidence with the uh, L-1B filing of the employee's past significant achievements. It can be helpful to show, for example, the loss, maybe the monetary loss that the company would suffer if the employee is not allowed to be brought into the United States. Right, and that is showing that the work to be performed in the U.S. needs to be completed within a short time frame. To meet either contract or other deadline is another strategy to use to show that there's not enough time to train another person or transfer the knowledge to someone else. Okay. So now we've done a little bit about specialized knowledge. So now we're going to go back to the concept of managers and executives. So you must say, and I think Joel pointed this out, whether the person is being sponsored in the L1 either as a manager or as an executive. If the new position is described as both a manager and an executive, uh, USCIS then requires you to satisfy all of the elements for each of the two categories. I don't think that was what they intended, but it's a clever way that they are trying to come back and either issue RFEs or denials. So the employees to be managed in the US have to be a substantial number of US personnel, even if they will also be managing personnel overseas. The USCIS no longer seems to accept that one will manage, for example, just two or three people in the U.S. and let's say 20 or 30 people abroad. Also, the USCIS carefully examines the types of employees who are being supervised. A manager who has six or seven professional workers reporting to him or her, that is workers in positions that require a minimum of a college degree in a particular field, then we'll find that such, for example, such as engineers or researchers, etc., that may be a slightly better and stronger case for the L1A, as opposed to if the person is managing six or seven, let's say, sales employees or other employees that I think Kenya had touched upon, because I think that'll be a much tougher case to win. Yeah, and uh, you've got to show that the employees that you're going to be managing for a standard L1 case, you've got to show that they're already in place. You can't tell the government, well, once I get here, I'm going to, I'm going to hire a bunch of people and then manage them. Um, you're, you have to show that you qualify at the time of filing. So you're going to need to show the evidence of the people you're going to be managing in the U.S. And um, basically, you're going to be showing, in addition, obviously, you're going to be showing who it is you've been managing abroad. Um, you typically want to be able to provide pay records, educational jog, uh, documents, job descriptions, and the like. Okay. So now let's jump to new office petitions, because that's a huge area. A lot of companies, a lot of businesses are finding because they've meet, reached the H1 cap. They're like, can we look at L1s and how does L1s work? What are the restrictions? What are the rules? So Kenya. Okay. So many businesses are ambitious international companies, and they seek to start a U.S. operation for their foreign businesses. These companies often want to transfer an executive or manager to the U.S. to set up the U.S. operation and get the business off the ground. Murthy Law Firm has assisted a number of international companies transfer their executives and managers to their new U.S. operation, utilizing the new office L1A petition. This allows the L1A worker to perform non-managerial or non-executive work for a limited period of time. So USCIS recognizes because the new office petitions are generally approved for a one-year period. So USCIS recognizes that during the initial phase, um, during that one-year period, that the person will be doing non-managerial or executive um, role. However, um, 
as the year goes on, the 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 position has to evolve to a managerial executive at the end. So for the purpose of the LBs, as new office is defined an, as an operation being in existence for less than one year. So the, you can't start a company a year and then a year later try and try to do a new office. Mm. So it has to have been in existence for less than one year. And when filing for an L1A petition to transfer an executive or manager to a new office, the company is required to submit certain additional types of evidence uh, with the petition. Now, one of the evidence is showing that sufficient physical premises to house the new office has been secured. Now, a lot of the times companies, you know, when they want to bring one person here, they're reluctant to invest in a new office or a lease. They want to do a virtual office or a one-month rent, but that does not work because USCIS will not approve a new office unless you have evidence that you have actual, not a virtual office or a shared office, but actual physical premises leased to to operate the business out of. Yeah, and uh, there's some other additional requirements for, for transferring over a manager as a new office, a manager, an executive. Um, before we, we had mentioned you have to work for at least one continuous year in the last three-year period. Um, f- the same rule applies for new offices. However, that position has to be managerial or an executive position. You couldn't have worked as a specialized knowledge employee abroad and then transfer for an L1A new office as a manager and executive, even though that would work for a standard petition, a non-new office type petition. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, the evidence which shows that the new U.S. company within one year of the approval of the petition will support the need for a traditional executive or managerial position, not just a startup executive or manager. I think Kenya just alluded to this. So you really need to establish by explaining what the proposed nature of the the office, outlining the scope of the business, the organizational structure, the financial and personnel goals that you as a business would hope to achieve or accomplish within that first year and then also within the next three or four years, like a five-year business plan, which with a detailed business plan, because, and you need to keep showing them that you will actually follow the business plan once the new office L1 has been approved, because after a year, they're going to ask to monitor and track exactly where you are with the business plan when they uh, when you apply to obtain an extension and as you and I all of us know that one year really flies by fast when you're trying to set up and do a lot of men- administrative menial tasks tasks and it's very very difficult so it's in a funny way they might approve the uh, one year much more easily and then give you such a hard time for a year two, uh, two three and four for the next three year extension which is really a big problem for many individuals and smaller p- companies because they have invested a huge amount of time money uh, et cetera, in the first, um, you know, year, year, and now they've lost all that in terms of what happens to them. Um, you know, I'm looking at the clock, and I know we have 30 to 45 minutes to wrap up, but I think we might be fine in terms of time. Okay, so um, um, so a very common problem that we see uh, where the new office extensions, I think I said, are denied is in the extension times, time frames 
where so so don't try to overshow how fantastic and how many people I'm going to bring. I'm going to hire 20 people in one year because then they'll give you a harder time. It's better to say I'll hire two people in the first year, five people by the end of the second or third year and, you know, 10 people after 10 years or whatever, rather than trying to say I'll raise so many million dollars and hire so many people. What are the other issues, Kanya? Okay, then the the size of the U.S. investment and the financial ability of the foreign entity to pay the beneficiary's salary and to commence business in the U.S. is important. US, USCIS typically wants to see actual evidence of money that the foreign company will spend on the new U.S. company. You can't have a business plan that says your operational expenses for the first year is going to be $100,000, uh, but the U.S., uh, the Indian company is only going to invest 10000 and, you know, and the, the U.S., the Indian, or I mean, the foreign entity's income does not, seem to support the $100,000 operational expenses for the first year. So, you know, it is important um, to for the, the foreign entity to show sufficient funds for the operation of the startup the first year. Um, okay. And, and then we were talking about new office extension petitions. As I said earlier, once the one year has been approved, and it's coming to an end, the employer, the company itself has to file that extension for the new office extension, right? And so we find that, you know, often the preparation for an extension petition is far more a challenging process than preparing the initial petition. Because as I had mentioned earlier, you must now show that the U.S. company has actually grown to a point where it can support the need for an, a real executive or managerial position because everyone says, oh, that's great. I'll get the fast track green card if I do it that way. Well, it's a problem because now you have to show that you actually are behaving and acting in a senior manager slash executive role. And so a, common, a lot of the RFEs that we get from other people or internally what we have seen is that the L1A transferee should no longer be performing what they consider non-qualifying work that is non-executive or non-managerial type of duties, but rather should be focusing exclusively in the role of a traditional executive or senior manager position where the duties are to supervise and oversee either an organization or a department or other professionals. Yeah, and uh, so during that one-year period, just to be clear, you may not be the, the the person that's been transferred over may not be performing duties that would be considered managerial or executive. Instead, they're actually building up the company. They may be um, looking for the personnel to hire. Um, various things, and you may not have the support personnel yet. You may be the person that's picking up that phone when, when someone calls because you haven't hired, let's say, the receptionist. Um, so some of these things are, uh, th that you're, you're doing are going to be considered non-qualifying non duties, and eventually you're going to have to get to the point by, by the time you're filing, filing that for the extension after the one year, which is a relatively short period of time for a new business, to show now I'm at a point the business is built up w w within that short period of time where I can perform in a manner uh, that's truly managerial or executive in nature. Um, so during that first year, you really have to spend the time to be basically trying to meet these benchmarks that you've set for yourself in, in the petition, the new office petition that was approved. When you say, look, I'm going to have eight employees hired, 
um, and, and have $500,000 in sales. When you're doing the extension, okay, maybe you fell a little bit short, but if it's in line with what you indicated, that's understandable. But if you come back to the government and you say, look, I, I've got one employee and $30,000 in sales, and hey, you know, we're, we're still building up, that's probably not going to cut it. You're going to be looking at a really tough case. You're going to see, we, we see these RFEs come in where, you know, the, the client comes in and they, they didn't do at all what they said they were going to do in the business plan. And uh, to be honest, the USCIS is not at all interested in hearing about why things didn't go the way you planned. Um, it may not make business sense, but from an immigration standpoint, this is kind of the game you have to play. You have to set reasonable goals, and then basically you, you need to make sure you meet them to have a, a good extension case down the line. Thank you, Joel. Kenya? Yes. So um, the extension L1 way petition after the completion of the one year must show the following. You have to evidence that the U.S. and foreign entities are still qualifying organizations, evidence that the U.S. company has been doing business for the previous year, statement and documentation describing the staffing of the new operation, including the number of employees and types of positions held accompanied by evidence of wages paid to employees. And finally, evidence of the financial status of the U.S. operation. So these are the critical documentation that you would need to include in order to uh, be successful in the extension of the petition. Uh, and another requirement that um, would probably help is to describe the duties that are already performed by the L1A manager slash executive during the past year. Um, describing the du duties and what they will and that they will be continuing to perform managerial slash executive duties going forward. It's a problem not to provide both and the USCIS often will issue RFEs in the absence of an explanation of what was done during the first year. So you have to show ba backwards what happened and forward moving forward what the intention is. Yeah, and kind of what I alluded to before, a lot of companies, especially smaller companies, they kind of find themselves caught between two conflicting goals. One, you're a small company, you're trying to minimize your expenses, so maybe you're delaying hiring the new employees because that's an added expense you don't need yet. On the other hand, if you wait and you, you haven't hired these employees, um, you, you know, the, you're, you're going to have problems on the immigration front. So you're trying to expand the company so you can show that you can you can truly support or manage or an executive. And keep in mind, it's not that you can hire the employees the you know a week before you file that extension. The government, you know, they want to see kind of what it looks at least at least appears to be organic growth. So presumably you're you're growing. You're hiring a few employees month by month or or, or quarter by quarter. And, and showing how the business has grown now to a point a year later, how it's gonna, going to support that. Um, the USCIS, is, on that extension front, they're not going to accept the, the, the claim, well, now I'm going to start hiring, or, or these people are, are going to be hired if you just give me an extension. They gave you that initial new office, and the expectation was you were going to hire them during that period. But occasionally, once in a while, they might approve a second one-year new office extension. But again, that's very, it's not automatic. It's right. their subjective dis discretion, if you can explain why there were certain things that completely or totally prevented you from getting off the ground. And so you could request one more year. Uh, that might work. That's one important strategy to keep in mind if you're really desperate. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that many of you have already seen uh, in the crazy anti-immigrant climate, unless, as we said earlier, if you don't sue, you may have a chance. But if you just accept the status quo is no more deference 
or respect is going to be given to prior approvals or adjudication. So just because you had prior approval of your L1, and this may be the third or fourth or fifth HL1 extension, doesn't mean that you're going to get it this time because they will want you to prove your case from scratch all over again. So as we've seen, if I want to sort of slowly start to wind down, being cognizant of the time, is scrutiny of our of every petition now in today's political climate, but particularly what we're seeing with L1As and L1Bs even more so, uh, really has become far more challenging. And so having a really strong legal team, lawyers like the Muthi Law Firm, um, you know, or if you have in-house people, having your in-house people monitor day to day, what are the changes? What are the USCIS updates? What's going on? with the government so that your business can keep abreast of the latest changes will really actually help you save time, money, and uh, give a lot more peace of mind for you in the long term. Uh, on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, and Kenya Sanders and Joel Janovich and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us today. And we hope that we have been able to shed some light to point out how you can try to respond to RFEs and present a stronger L1A, L1B case. Thank you very much and have a good afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.